to Denver Sports Tonight. Taking a look at the biggest stories in Denver sports. From your online home for the best opinions and information on the Broncos, Nuggets, Avalanche, Rockies, and more. DenverSports.com. And it is Denver Sports Tonight on this Wednesday night in the Mile High City. He's Andrew Mason. I'm Will Peterson rolling with you for the next hour. Mace, good to hear you. Uh, well, I haven't heard your voice yet, but it's going to be good to hear your voice. How you doing, my man? Doing all right. How you doing, Will? I'm doing well. Um, I want to get your opinions on the news about John Elway yesterday, since you and I have not had a chance to talk about that. But I also want to do a bounce around Denver sports, Mace, because we've got a lot going on. The Nuggets with a, a terrible, inexcusable loss last night in Houston. The Avs clinch a playoff berth in the Rockies. Well, tomorrow's home opener. You got any good stories from uh, opening day? Oh, well, it's funny because over the years as a fan, I learned to stay away from Rockies opening day unless I'm me being an Atlanta Braves fan, if the, unless the Braves were playing because I had a, just a couple too many experiences of getting, you know, beer spilled on me at some point. I, I tended to go on day two or day three mm. um, because opening day in Denver, it's it's a party. I mean, it, it's the unofficial first day of spring, the unofficial end of winter, although it's going to be a little bit chilly tomorrow. But I'll tell you something, Will. I was actually just looking at something. Earlier today, I got an email from the Rockies about buying tickets for tomorrow's game. Wow, so that means it's uh, not sold out, I guess. Yeah, because I'm, and so I went on the Rockies website where you could buy tickets, and I make sure to on the filter that they give you to say no resale tickets. So I wanted to see just what was out there on the market. I mean, there are you can buy two seats together in like ten sections behind or near home plate on the one hundred level. Okay, now, granted. These are expensive seats. These are $160 pop. But still very good seats to watch a ball game in. Yeah. So if you want a great seat to watch tomorrow's game, it's available. There are, you know, there are multiple sections down the first and third baselines available. Uh, if you want to do something a little more value-oriented, although value is kind of an interesting term here, because, like, if you buy two tickets in Section 160, which is right there, uh, in left center field. Okay. You know, if you looked behind you, if you turned your head and looked behind you, you look at the rock pile. It's $95 a seat. Oof, that seems steep to me. It's, and if you want to sit in the upper level down either the first or third, third base side, it's $70. And there are still tickets available for this. So I, I, I look at this and I think to myself, all right, first of all, we know the Rockies are struggling, and we, we, we've you know discussed ad nauseum where they stand. But is it possible that given where they are right now, that even with opening day being such a big event, and of course it's going to be the, the farewell to, to Blake Street Tavern uh, around, around, it, around that tomorrow, did the Rockies maybe overprice this event? Because I'm sitting here, and you can find tickets in any number of price ranges available for this game. It's surprising. Yeah, it, it should be sold out by now. First pitch is in about 20 hours. Right. And that, that surprises me because it feels like it's sellout every year, and it feels like there's only tickets available on the resale market that are 
jacked up. Speaking of prices, I got some sent to me today. The Rockies did a uh, a media tour around Coors Field. Do you want to take a guess what a large domestic beer will go for at the ballpark? Uh, about fourteen dollars. Yeah, thirteen twenty nine for a large domestic beer. A cra- include tax. Uh, applicable taxes will be added to each posted price. So, no. So, you're 14, Mace. I think you nailed it right on the head. That's a $14 beer. That's oh a $14 beer. Uh, uh, if you want a craft beer, which I know a lot of people in Colorado drink, that's going to run you fifteen thirty-five before tax. A 12-ounce can cocktail will get you eleven fifteen. Can of wine, eleven fifteen, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I'm obviously not seeing, you know, I don't know. A, a spirit and a mixer because that I don't really count that for a canned cocktail. But point being, the most expensive item on the menu that at least the picture I'm seeing is uh, domestic beer and craft beer running uh, fourteen and sixteen bucks after taxes. Honestly, when you give me the prices for the cans of wine compared to beer, I, I've got to go with the wine. More bang for your buck, right? Yes, exactly. Because yeah. it's a sixteen ounce beer and it's twelve ounce glass of wine, right? Uh, I would. I, I don't have ounces in front of me, but oh, okay. uh, well, a twelve ounce can cocktail. Um, but I okay. don't know what the wine can is for eleven dollars and fifteen cents. Okay, because like if we're talking about a twelve ounce can of wine, and the other thing is if you're thinking about uh, uh, the content of uh, the, the, the the percentage of spirit, the proof of the uh, the beverage, as it were, then yeah, I gotta say I think the wine and cocktails gonna be better deals than the beers. It sounds like. If that's you know, if for those who are who are thinking about it, but it, maybe it's a study of the market because of in particular with the craft beer culture because of how in demand craft beers are. But my goodness gracious, I mean that's that's some. I, I hate to think about how much a Heldenberger costs now. Yeah, I, out there in left field. Well, and you you said it earlier, and we'll you know I want to get over to the Elway stuff in a moment, but we'll we'll put a bow on this. You're spending – it was $90 to sit in left center field, right? Yeah, $95 a ticket. And Not, there are 10 tickets available in Section 160. Okay, so 95 a ticket. So say, you know, you and significant other want to go, whatever. That's 190 right there. You drink two beers each throughout the game. That's another 56 bucks. Yeah. Um, you get a couple Helton burgers. We don't have those prices in front of us. Probably fifteen a pop ish. Fries another five bucks. Let's call it, you know, forty bucks. Yeah. I mean, Mace, all in, you're looking at a three hundred dollar opening day to sit in the bleachers where your view is not great of home plate, and you may even need binoculars to uh, to really feel like you're in on the action from that far away, unless your vision is a clean twenty twenty. And that same seat. Friday night would cost you $31. Wow. Okay. So you're right. When you you open this conversation by did the pomp and circumstance of opening day persuade the Rockies to maybe go a little higher than they should? And, yeah, when we see the game on TV tomorrow, there will be a, a smattering of empty seats. Will they blame it on, oh, well, it only got up to 50 degrees or whatever, or will those seats just straight up not be sold? I guess we'll find out when the attendance comes out. I mean, it's funny. On Friday night, you can sit behind home plate, 100 level, for $23 less than it costs you to sit out in left center field for the face value of your ticket on Thursday. So that's why you just said you don't really deal with opening day because it's it's a party, yes, yeah. but it's also – a 
let's be honest, it's a it's a rage type party. It's not a not a real calm party, and you're going to spend triple the money just mm-hmm. to say you were at opening day. Whereas if you're a pure baseball fan and just really want to go to the game, Friday night value wise makes a lot more sense, and probably from a calmness standpoint as well. Yeah, it's funny because the thing I found out as uh, uh, with with my daughter as as time went on is that. We would always go to a game on the fir- during the first series, but it, o- it was always the second or the third game. We always just waited past opening day, waited for day two or day three. And it was and it got kind of the same vibe of saying, "All right, it's springtime, it's baseball. Let's get this let, let's uh, get this thing kicked off." As I mix my sports metaphors, but in a more calm environment. I do I do wonder if there are some other fans who've decided who who've made that same type of decision that okay, I'm just going to wait a day or two and then. And then get into going to games and experience course field because despite the team being a lousy team, although it's a good it's a good team to start against the Washington Nationals because this is one team where you could say they actually are worse than the Rockies or are projected to be worse than the Rockies. Oh yeah, I joked with DMac. I said uh, I can name you some former Nationals. You know, <laughs> Bryce Harper, heck- Juan Soto, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner. Like the list goes on and on. I couldn't name you any current Nationals though. You think about. They won the World Series in 2019, and they have spent the last three years dismantling it. The thing that you could argue the Rockies have been unwilling to do is dismantle uh, for prospects. Now we'll revisit the Nationals in two or three years and see where they are, and you know, and see whether the they had some wisdom in this. But it was a dismantling back in the mid to late 2000s that led to the to them being a contending team throughout much of the 2010s that ultimately won a World Series. But year in and year out, they were a relevant team. But they got there because they tore down, and now they're trusting themselves to tear down again and build it back up and see where they go, something that uh, 20th and Blake, they've been unwilling to do. All right, well, a lot of the fan staff will be down there tomorrow, denversports.com as well. Uh, I know DMAC will make some appearances, calling in. Zach Bai is going to do some call-ins. Myself, Jake Shapiro, Rachel Hill. we will have you covered both on air and online. But I do... Mace, want to get your thoughts about John Elway officially departing the Broncos organization. He told Mike Kliss that in an interview yesterday, and it kind of cracked me up because, like, NFL Network and ESPN just reported in, like, the last two hours. It's like, okay, you guys are 24 hours late, but you caught up. This has become a national story that John Elway no longer works for the Broncos in any sort of an official capacity. But you wrote a really nice column last night, so I want your your initial thoughts on it and also – I loved what you you said in the headline, and I'll let you go here after you you, you said recent Broncos history is complicated, but John Elway's legacy is simple and clear. Well, if you look at the recent history, obviously it's it's pretty lousy, and we've spent the last few years debating the wisdom or lack thereof in some of the moves that Broncos have made. Cecil Lammy and I were talking about it on Orange and Blue today. As well, because there are so many junctures where if John Elway had made a different decision, the Broncos wouldn't be there. And they were close to making those right decisions time after time. But then, for whatever reason, just made the choice. You know, they they, they chose door number two and behind door number two, you know, was uh, was was the donkey pulling a wagon and uh, in, and uh, the wagon was loaded with fertilizer. Sure. So the thing is, though. And we've seen this with other franchise legends who, when they went out, it wasn't on a high note. 
eventually what you remember are the good times. Right. You know, and the thing is, with John Elway, as lousy as the last few years have been, and as culpable as the decisions were in getting the Broncos to this point, it's going to be a, a few years from now all about two Super Bowls, one as a player, one Super Bowl, one as a GM, first person in NFL history to win a Super Bowl as a quarterback, as a starting quarterback, and as a general manager, building an all-time great offense in 2013, some parts inherited, some parts including Peyton Manning, we, he and John Fox helped convince to come to Denver, some parts added, and then turning around, learning from that, and the disaster of Super Bowl Forty Eight and building an all-time defense that did push the Broncos over the top to win Super Bowl Fifty. What happened after that? You know, the belief that you could get back there with that defense that proved to be unwise. But you can't take away the positives. And I think that's when I was looking at John Elway, and I, I was thinking about how in in Green Bay, Bart Starr coached nine seasons eventually after playing. Okay, and. Those were not good and happy seasons in Wisconsin. And the Packers eventually had to fire Bart Starr. Mm. All, all timer. They won you know, they won five NFL championships, two the first two Super Bowls on his watch. It didn't take many years after that until when Bart Starr was welcomed back for old timers days and all that, that he was warmly greeted, even though in those last few years as Packers head coach a lot of people didn't have warm and fuzzy feelings about him because his team was struggling. Ultimately, you'll remember the good times more than the bad times. And it's going to be about about what the positives and all the wonderful things that happen on, with John Elway as a part of the Broncos. Look, they've been to eight Super Bowls. John Elway's been a part of seven of them. The 12 years between being a player and being an executive when he wasn't part of the Broncos, I mean, diehard fans can tell you what happened in those years. I, having covered the team for most of those, I can tell you what happened. But... There's not a the, you know there's not a lot of huge memories from those times, and certainly they won one playoff game in the twelve years in between John Elway stints with the franchise. Well, so his role, I mean he he had a huge role in taking the Broncos to places that they'd never been before. And you look at it, you know, obviously the Steelers and Patriots have six Lombardi trophies, the Cowboys and Niners trail them, the Packers and Giants trail them, and then it's the group with the Broncos. The Chiefs, which joined them this year, the Raiders, and the Washington football team that has changed names so many times mm-hmm. with three Lombardi trophies. And the Denver Broncos, quite frankly, Mace, would probably have zero Lombardi trophies or maybe a maximum one if they had never traded for John Elway or if John Elway had never come back and helped recruit Peyton Manning, as you outlined and assembled one of the greatest defenses we've ever seen in the history of the league after getting his butt kicked in a Super Bowl 43-8 by the Seahawks and totally transforming a roster and a franchise mentality in 24 months from Super Bowl eight, Super Bowl 48 excuse me, to Super Bowl 50. Three Lombardi trophies is up there. Again, I named the franchise. Steelers, Patriots, Cowboys, Niners, Packers, Giants, and then the Broncos and a host of other teams. Those are the most iconic and most famous teams in football And John Elway has the Broncos in that conversation because he has a direct, direct hand in bringing all three championships that franchise has won to Denver. So while I don't ignore the last five years, I I just I've seen some of this reaction of like, good, I'm glad he's gone. And it's like, 
man, you are so short-sighted to feel that way when this city has three Lombardi trophies in large part because of that man, and he's the most iconic sports figure in the history of our state. Exactly, and I th- and and that's why I think that the farther we get from this moment, the more it's going to be about the good times. Now, I mean, we can't ignore what's happened the last the last few years, no doubt. And if you're writing the exhaustive history of John Elway, you have to talk about that. The interesting thing is that if you look at some other NFL legends, whether you're talking about coaches, executives, players. I mean, Tom Landry, for example, in Dallas, they they were a struggling team in his final years. They had three consecutive losing seasons. And then Jerry Jones buys the Cowboys, shows up at the golf course where Tom Landry's finishing around, and as he walks off the 18th green, is that he and Tech Schramm fire Tom Landry. Wow, okay. Um, Don Shula in Miami, winningest coach of all time, he wasn't fired, but he was nudged to the door there when they had Jimmy Johnson waiting in the wings to take over the Dolphins. Paul Brown founded the Browns. They named the team after him, and he got fired in, I believe it was 1961. And we may well see an ending for Bill Belichick in New England that isn't storybook based on the way things are trending. I mean, you take a look at kind of where the AFC East stands and the Patriots might be in the worst shape of any team there and it doesn't look like it's going to get better in the near future and all of a sudden they're, they're staring down the barrel having uh, Josh Allen on their schedule uh, twice a year. So you see all these examples of endings that were inelegant. And I think for John Elway... Even though there certainly were conversations back in December of 2020 between him and Joe Ellis that sort of started this process, and that's what led him, and and that's part of what led him to step away from being the GM after that season, he's had kind of a very elegant, gradual transition into the life beyond football, right? He stops being GM, but he is basically like the person in charge of choosing his successor, George Payton. Right. He serves a year as president of football operations while not doing a lot of the day-to-day decision-making. He serves another season as a consultant. And now with new ownership and every basically everything being new down at UC Health Training Center, it's a logical end point to John Elway's time in Denver. It's just under 40 years after the Broncos Uh, acquired him following the 1983 draft. And while it's not ending with a trophy, it seemed it's a pretty it's as good an ending as you can really get in terms of having a lot of dignity. Now, I'll ask you this, and this was I was thinking about this earlier today. Yeah. How would the John Elway years be viewed if he had done what Joe Sackick is doing Mm. and Joe Sackick? basically handing the baton and t- and stepping back into a, into more of an overseer less involved in the day-to-day nuts and bolts of the decision making after the Avs won that Stanley Cup last year. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating sort of question to consider because Sackick saw his team go to rock bottom in 2016. 
when they had 48 points, something like that, the worst in the NHL, Jared Bednar's first year. Mm-hmm. And while people weren't necessarily down on Joe, it, it's not like the Avs had made any sort of significant run before that. I mean, I think they had made the playoffs once or twice in the Nathan McKinnon era, and they they uh, they played the Wild in an epic first-round series that they ultimately lost in seven games. And other than that, it wasn't like Joe had really done anything as a an, an exec other than secure the Avs a lot of high draft picks, which he used really well, right? He drafted Nathan McKinnon. He drafted Miko Ranton, and he eventually drafted Kale McCarr, who are now the core foundation pieces of this team. So it's almost like Sackick and Elway, the timelines for them are flipped. John came out of the gate so hot and won five AFC West titles and went to two Super Bowls and won a Super Bowl, whereas Joe took over a team that was a once-proud franchise that had fallen to rock bottom and built it back up from literally the worst team in the NHL to a contender year in and year out that finally broke through last year. Mm-hmm. Which timeline would you rather have? Well, in this moment, I'd much rather have Joe's, right? Um, John was the toast of the town for years and years, but we all know the line in the sand, Mace. They fell off a cliff after, after Super Bowl 50. They had no chance of going back-to-back, whereas Joe's in a position to not just win one championship as an exec, he might win two, he might win three. So that's why I'd I'd say Joe, honestly, over John. Yeah, and I think you can't really argue uh, otherwise. And I think also I think Sackett kind of understood understood the the timing. I think it it was interesting because John Elway – was determined to get the Broncos back. He didn't. Nobody wanted this to be a one and done thing. I mean, the, the whole he kept talking about winning from now on. But the mistake that was made was in thinking that that defense focused formula could be replicated for multiple titles. When the right. thing that we have seen in NFL history is that when you've had the great defense. Without a great quarterback, those teams have usually been one-shot winners, right? Mm, okay. The 85 Bears. Yep. The all-time defense, the 85 Bears, you can argue. But they had Jim McMahon at quarterback. Fine, but he couldn't stay healthy. They only won it once. Um, 2000 Ravens, they were one-timer. The Bucks of the turn of the century around at 02 with – Guys like John Lynch and Warren Sapp and Rondé Barber and Derek Brooks, they were they were a one-time champion in that era. And so what we've seen over and over again is the teams that were defensive-oriented, that won it all, they had their shot and, and, and then that was it. And maybe that's where you look back and say that was a mistake the Broncos made was in thinking that, okay, if we can get just enough from quarterback, we get just enough uh, from offense with this defense, we can ride it, we can get back. We're really historically that's the outlier what you the teams with great defenses that did win multiple titles they had hall of fame quarterbacks sure the steelers had the steel curtain in the 70s they had terry bragshaw on the offensive side who was a two-time super bowl mvp and and a hall of famer right dallas had doomsday defense but they had roger stallback a hall of famer right it's it's pretty clear that if you are if you're focused on defense and that's how you win a championship if you don't have that that elite quarterback on the other side, it's not going to be a you're not going to be a dynasty. You're going to be a one off, 
And in the end for the Broncos, that's what happened, as great as that defense was. And it was you could argue that defense was basically as good in 2016 as it was in 2015. But you lose some close games with Trevor Simeon at quarterback, and you're going 9-7 and seven instead of 12-4. and four. And so, and and then, and the other thing then beyond that for Elway is always thinking they were like just one or two tweaks away from getting back in that conversation. He never went full rebuild. rebuild. Yeah, yeah, not build, not being willing to rebuild. All right, but at least you and I agree that John Elway's legacy um, is a is a phenomenal one, one of the best in this state. And anyone who just wants to focus on the last five years is being totally short sighted. Yeah, without it's without parallel. In, in football, just in the sport of football, and in terms of in this state, I think the only parallel to his legacy is Joe Sackick. Right. Both won two as a player and one as an exec. And speaking of Joe Sackick, we're going to talk about his team getting a big overtime win last night, getting tied atop the Central Division. And we also, unfortunately, have to talk about their counterparts at Ball Arena, the Nuggets, with perhaps the worst loss of the season. Andrew Mason, Will Peterson with you for another half hour. Mace, did you catch the Nuggets last night? I didn't. I mean, I went back and, uh, and, and went through the game a little bit after the fact, but I didn't because I was traveling. And But you didn't miss much. Hand, you didn't I'm, miss much. Yeah, on the one hand, I'm glad I missed it. On the other hand... I think I would have. Asked, there's part of me that just wanted to see, to watch and see. Okay, what went wrong? Because you, I mean, look, you're talking about a team that since March eighth, they're six and eight. Oh, you talk about entering the playoffs with a lack of momentum. I do want to talk about the broad of this team and could they lose an eight-one series? I told the guys on the drive that I think they could go full. Mid-90s Nuggets against the Sonics when they were on the right end of that. The Nuggets could be on the wrong end of it. But last night, I'll fill you in quickly on what you missed. The second half, Mace, I have never seen a team play at 60 to 70% speed and think they can get away with it. I wasn't even sitting there in the arena, and it was that apparent on TV that they were in quicksand. They thought they could go through the motions and beat a crappy Rockets team and clinch the number one seed for the first time in their NBA existence. First of all, that's insulting to the Rockets because they're still an NBA team. Even though they stink, they still have NBA players. Second of all, that is such an arrogance that is unacceptable from a Nuggets team that has never won squat in their existence to think we can go 60% speed, throw the basketball behind our back, and turn it over seemingly every other possession just because we're more talented than these guys on paper, it was embarrassing for the players. It was embarrassing for the coaching staff. And I was sitting on my couch as a Nuggets fan going, why did I let this team suck me into thinking they're going to win a championship when I now believe they are more likely to flame out, if not the first round, 100% the second round. And now you have Michael Malone taking... An interesting motivational tactic because he said the S word. Soft. Right. That word is much has has much more heft than the other S word that uh, you you can't say on Well he used he used that one in the postgame presser too. He yes. used both. Soft. But so, soft is the one that 
boy, I mean, th- this has got the potential to do two different things. It can either light a fire under this team or it can drive a wedge between the coaching staff and the players. Mm. And if it drives that wedge, are you on my line of thinking? We'll have to see who the matchup is because the NBA play in tournaments a whole different beast. Um, who the eight seed is could ultimately be anyone from the seven seed to the ten seed. It really is the seed where you could play any of the four in the first round, depending on how that three game play in tournament falls. But are you agreeing or do you disagree with my line of thinking? There are certain matchups. You know, I'm looking at the Lakers or I'm looking at the Warriors or the Clippers if they fall back into that play-in tournament, that the Nuggets will get upset 8-1 if they don't get their act together and don't get their act together fast. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Now, if they're the one, and look, they're gonna fin- they will finish this off. I don't think they're going to lose the next three. So they're going to finish this off. They're going to be the number one seed, and so that would take them out of playing the seven at least. Correct, but the play-in tournament, if the seven loses to the eight – Yes. then they have to go play the 9 versus 10 for the 8. Mm-hmm. So, so it yeah. takes you out of whoever wins the first play-in game, but say the Warriors fall to that and somehow lose the 7-8 game, all of a sudden they could now be the 8 as well. Right. And, and and the thing is with the Lakers, while I don't think the Lakers have enough de- have enough depth-wise to withstand a 7-game series, you're, you are, when you bring the LeBron factor in, that is the element of chance that you'd rather not bring into the equation. Correct. Somebody who, with all respect to everybody who's going to wear a Nuggets jersey, somebody who knows better about how to turn it up in that environment and dig deep for something that we, except for the bubble, haven't seen from this Nuggets team in this generation. Well, and who is getting the calls in that series, right? Well, the the, La- the Lakers have not only the biggest free throw discrepancy in the NBA, they've got the biggest by, I think, over 200 free throws. Exactly. They're lapping the field. It's one of those things, Mace, where the conspiracy theorists in the NBA can sort of have their theories validated because of that free throw discrepancy you just brought up. And if we're watching Nuggets-Lakers and it's the fourth quarter of Game 7 and LeBron and Anthony Davis are getting every whistle, there is some evidence to throw behind that theory. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is um, the the thought may go through people's mind. Boy, you hope that it's not Scott Foster with a whistle. LeBron James doesn't like Scott Foster either. <laughs> you know, yep. I mean, that's that's just one where it could be completely random. However... When you see a pattern developing with the Lakers as it is, to that degree, that's the thing. It's not just that they have the greatest free throw discrepancy in the NBA. It is the degree of it. It's so far beyond the second best that that's where, and also given the NBA's history, it does spur, I feel, justifiable doubt that if you're going against the Lakers and LeBron – that you're not going to be coming out of every game thinking, what the bleep kind of call was that? Right. And you're not calling it both ways. And, and, that's, and that's the that's the element of chance that you, if you're the Nuggets, that you absolutely are desperate to avoid right now. And it, it would just, I shudder to think 
the Jokic critics would be amplified times a thousand if he loses an eight one series. Michael Malone would one hundred percent be looking for new employment. You know, well, a lot of people on this station have talked about, well, do they have to go to the NBA Finals for Malone to keep his job? Or or would the Western Conference Finals be enough for Malone to keep his job? If they lose an 8-1, the Cronkies fired our friend George Carl after being Coach of the Year and winning 57 games in 2013. Michael Malone will be fired within hours of that series ending. So the ramifications of if it happens... And again, the only reason we're going down this doomsday rabbit hole is because of what occurred last night in Houston are massive because, Mace, I think everyone in the organization would be in trouble except if your last name's Kroenke or your last name's Jokic. Everyone else is fair game for a change. Malone, Porter, Murray, et cetera. Right, and the, and the other thing is some of those changes, you hope they're the right changes, but, the, but there will be something of a sense of panic if – they have an early out in this in this postseason panic over wasting the window of the greatest player in the history of the franchise a, tr- a truly transcendent player that this that this club has not had with all respect to Melo in the 2000s that this club has I, I would say never had and again all due respect to David Thompson back in the 70s but the Nuggets have never had a player like this and every year that goes past is is a year closer to that window to that window closing, and you could argue right now that you know, even as terrific as Jokic is, is this peak Jokic? Is this as high as he ever gets right now? Because whether or not he's going to be the MVP in the next few months, I mean, when the when the voting comes down, he's still he's still leading the league in, in efficiency rating once again, right? Yeah, but he's How not. How long gonna, is that going to be sustained? Mace, he's not going to be the MVP. Embiid had fifty-two yeah, last night. Jokic had fourteen, ten, and four with eight turnovers. The odds went from Embiid, or they went to Embiid minus one thousand, meaning you have to bet a thousand to win a lousy hundred bucks, and Jokic plus twelve hundred. There's just there's not enough time for him to make it up. Embiid won MVP last night. Yeah, and the thing that, and I think part of the reason he's won MVP, as it were, is because. There is that sentiment, okay, well, you know what? It's just time to give him the award. And we, We've seen this in the past. You could argue that Michael Jordan should have been the MVP in the last 11 or 12 seasons that he played with the Chicago Bulls. Oh, yeah. Every so, but and they just got sick of giving MJ the awards. They right. Gave it to like, someone oh, else. Well, we're going to give it to Charles Barkley because it's just his turn, right? Right. And you're getting that same sense with Embiid, even though – if you look at the at the at the PER rankings, and Jokic is still number one, and Embiid's number two. All right, so, coming up next, we did not get to the Avalanche in their big win in San Jose. We'll let Mace finish his thought on Joel Embiid, but I also will talk about Jared Bednar pushing all the right buttons. Denver Sports Station 104.3 The Band presents Denver Sports Tonight. All right, final segment of the show, Andrew Mason, Will Peterson. As we wrap up on this Wednesday night, the night before opening day, opening day eve, if you will, at Coors Field for the Rockies and Nationals tomorrow at 2. But, Mace, I so rudely cut you off before our last break. I think you had one more point to make on the Jokic Embiid MVP uh, battle, debate, whatever you want to call it, that unfortunately now appears over, even though maybe the numbers still say Jokic should still win it, although he's not going to. Yeah, it, what I was just going to say was fair or unfair. Jokic's 
legacy as an MVP is kind of on the line here this postseason, I think. Whoa. Okay. Legacy. Strong word. Well, yeah, because uh, the, what is the, like, the, the thing that, cri- at least among critics, because the thing that you hear is, oh, well, I mean, it's, he, he, he puts up stats, blah, 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 but he hasn't, uh, you know, he hasn't taken his, taken his team deep. And so it's one of those weird things where if the Nuggets have a deep run this year, Jokic may not be the MVP, but it might rationalize being getting MVP votes and being the MVP in the future because let's say the Nuggets go at least to the NBA Finals. Then I think a, a huge critique of Nicole Jokic that some people outside of Denver, I mean, this is not a critique that I have or you have or anybody else around here has, but the critique being that, uh, okay, does he elevate everyone around him? I would say just watch the team and watch how it is without him yeah. and with him, and that's enough to show just how he elevates the team. But if the Nuggets go on a deep run here in the postseason, I think I, I think all of a sudden the argument that some people have against Jokic on these national talk shows and all that, I think that argument goes away forever. By the way, real quick, uh, John Morant not playing for the Grizzlies tonight down in New Orleans, so watch out Bourbon Street. Everyone just thought they would lose and the Nuggets would get the number one seed sort of unceremoniously. Memphis is up 15 points on the Pelicans, 54-39. to 39. That would extend this, that the Nuggets-Suns game tomorrow night would then be another chance. But again, if the Pelicans come back and beat the Grizzlies, the Nuggets secure the one seed on a night they're not even on the court. That was the conventional wisdom, given that Memphis is on a back-to-back and trotted out their B team. But as of now, guys like uh, our friend David Roddy from CSU are getting minutes, and the Grizzlies are taking it to the Pelicans down in New Orleans. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, maybe you know, it does. It, it actually doesn't say much further for the Nuggets cons- with, with what they did last night. When you're seeing the Grizzlies not play Morant and they're taking the hammer to a team that's right there in the uh, in, in the the play-in playoff conversation. Yeah, work to be done potentially. We'll keep an eye on it. Of course, keep you posted tomorrow. But I want to close the show on the Avs because they got a four-three win last night in San Jose in overtime. I stayed up late to watch it. I wrote about it on denversports.com as soon as it concluded. 8.30 starts on the West Coast are pretty brutal, but it was totally worth it, Andrew Mason, because although I was upset the Avalanche blew a 3-1 lead to a bad Sharks team, overtime was exciting, thrilling, uh, enthralling. Whatever word you want to use, it was chaos. Back and forth, three-on-three, chaos. The Sharks tried to play the possession game for about a minute, that didn't really work, and then guys were tired, falling over. There was a 2-on-0 where Alexander Georgiev made an unbelievable save, and then San Jose had a bad turnover. Devontae's a perfect bank pass to Nathan McKinnon off the boards. He walks in untouched, easy, shoot and score. As win 4-3, two things happened. They clinched a playoff berth, and they tied the Stars in the wild atop the Central Division with a game in hand in the standings so the Avs control their own destiny. Any thoughts on the game? But even bigger picture, how fitting is it that this Avs team has battled so many injuries and with 10 days left in the season, they control their own fate to win the division, something none of us thought was possible two, three months ago. It's the further maturation of a championship team. And you say, can you go? What, where do you go beyond just winning We've seen the Tampa Bay Lightning, they went back-to-back, and then they went to the finals the, the, the year after that. You saw 
a team that in the Lightning, once they kind of got that monkey off their back of, okay, they keep coming close and then fall short in the postseason, they attack the following years with the, the steady confidence of a team that knows how to put themselves in a position to be playing the best hockey of the time uh, of the year when it matters the most. And I see that same thing with the Avalanche right now. They've from their la- from their last 13 games they've gotten 22 points. I know that losing 4-2 to the Stars that's the it, that's that's a that's the frustration thing, uh, the frustrating thing, and I'm still concerned about if they have to go against the Stars in a seven-game series going against Marc-Andre Fleury. But you know what? Here they are sitting there right now. They've got, they, and correct me if I'm wrong, they have a game in hand. They do. They have right. one game in hand, so they control their own right. They control their own fate for this thing. They, they can make Minnesota and Dallas duke it out while they face likely the Seattle Kraken in round one. To me, that would be the perfect way for this, uh, this playoff bracket to break. Absolutely. This could not go any better. You're taking, you're taking one of the stars in the wild out of the equation. And they may beat each other up. You may not even have to see the flower in the second round if if you can take care of business here the re- the, the rest of the way. And 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 you got another game against San Jose coming coming up here tomorrow night. And then you've got you got some win- winnable games. I will. I mean, you know, the Nashville game at the end is interesting, but Nashville may well be eliminated by that point. Let's hope for that. I was thinking that too. It's like Nashville's kind of teetering on wild card relevancy, but for the Avs, it would be great if that game against the Predators means absolutely nothing to Nashville and they're ready to go play golf. I think it's lining up perfectly for them to claim the division based on on the six-game run into the playoffs. And it does feel like, I mean, I know the East is strong, Mace, but it does feel like things are breaking right, especially if... Landis Goglekin and Manson come back. The Avs could very well be playing for a cup again uh, while the Nuggets, you know, unfortunately lose in one of the first two rounds. It could follow a very similar blueprint, blueprint, excuse me, to last year. And you might see those teams in the East beat each other up. I mean, just look at look at the fact that you've got one division that's led by Boston, Toronto, and Tampa Bay. Right. So, like, let's say it's the Leafs. The Leafs might have to go through the Lightning and the Bruins just to get to the conference finals where you might have to face Carolina or the Rangers. You're going to probably have a tenderized champion coming out of the East. And if the Rats can come out of the West, I think they're poised to get a second straight cup. All right. Sounds good. Mace, great job as always. I appreciate it. For KJ, for Will, it's been Denver Sports Tonight on Denver Sports Station, 104.3 The Fan.